The Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit is now in session. All persons having any business before this Honorable Court may draw near, give their attendance, and they shall be heard. God save the United States of America and this Honorable Court. Thank you. Be seated. Court is in session. Today's cases will be called as previously announced. The times will be as allotted to counsel. The first case today is number 21-1832, United States versus Sherwin Quinn. At this time, would Attorney Schneider please come up to the podium and introduce himself on the record to begin. Yes, good morning, Your Honors. Uh, Michael Schneider for Sherwin Chin. May it please the court. Um, I would request, Your Honor, two minutes for rebuttal. You may. Thank you. The government's uh, seizure and detention of Mr. Chin's electronic devices for 71 days, actively searching it for 60 days, so exceeded uh, the scope and duration of a border search that it was not a border search at all. <clears throat> but if it was a border search, it was a, a non it was a non routine search. Uh, it was and it was not reasonable. Um, the length of this detention, 71 days, tripled in length the longest uh, such uh, search approved by this court, uh, which was the case of Molina Gomez. That was 22 days. In that case, while the court did acknowledge that uh, there were no hard and fast time limits set by the Supreme Court for border searches, that the cert that 22-day search was lengthy. If that was lengthy, this was over the top. Um, the a 60 days active search, the 71 day detention, which would apply uh, uh, with respect to all business travelers in principle, uh, was three times what the prosecutor particularly instructed the uh, HSI and uh, CBP agents to limit their search to. Uh, it was three times the presumptive uh, length of an appropriate search under HSI policy. Granted, the HSI policy did allow for 15-day extensions, but the presumptive extent of that was 30 days. The CBP policy, uh, it, which is, uh, provides for only a five-day uh, seizure and detention uh, and search, uh, it, uh, is, in terms of its policy, uh, limited to brief, a brief, reasonable period of time. Uh, so. The search here was extremely intrusive. Uh, it uh, went into Mr. Chin's laptop. Just so I understand what the, how, how the theory works, there's some point in time you imagine we identify as too long, at which point then what warrant and a probable cause is needed to continue the search? At some point, warrant, a warrant and probable cause is needed, yes, to, to continue the search. There's no question that the agents from the beginning had some generic concerns. They were doing their job as border agents. But, but I guess I'm just trying to, the, the theory sure. would be something like you can have a limited period of time under reasonable suspicion because it's just a border search. But if you haven't uncovered anything there that then you could use to support a, showing a probable cause and a warrant, unless you have some other basis for it, uh, that, that's the end, that's the idea. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is, could the, could the agents have detained the devices for 100 days, 200, 300, for several years before, uh, before obtaining probable cause and a warrant? Suppose just hypothetically that because much of the language was in Mandarin, because much of the information was encrypted, 
and because there was a large volume of it, suppose that it would reasonably take the Border Patrol people 60 days to search it. Then, and I know you, you disagree that 60 days was reasonable, but if, it, if we were to find that that was a reasonable period of time given those three constraints, then what would your position be? I would say I could imagine other cases where it might have been reasonable uh, for the agents to detain a device for certainly a period exceeding the Molina period, the 22-day period. I don't know where the line drawing should take place, and I'm not sure this is the case for that. But in this case, the, the real concerns the, the, about the so-called practical challenges, and the agents did have some practical challenges. Uh, a lot of the files were in Chinese. There's no question about it. A small, relatively small number of the 55 gigabytes uh, on Mr. Chin's hard drive uh, were subject to some form of encryption, not the kind of encryption the government agents initially expected, not the blockchain or the PGP. Uh, there was one other form that they were originally concerned about. Um, but a, a lot of us have encrypted files. It's not an indication of anything improper to have some encrypted files on one's laptop. I do. But what, what, what's the point of that, though? Because the idea is if they have your argument for this purpose on length assumes there's reasonable suspicion, right? A reasonable suspicion S under what circumstances? Given your focus on the length issue, yes. we're assuming that there's yes. reasonable suspicion of the crime independent of the encryption. So the encryption's relevant not as to whether it creates suspicion. That's true. The encryption is relevant as whether it creates a practical constraint that requires right. the length to be as long as it was. Yeah. So how, yes. how, So what's the answer so it, to that? It, if there is encrypted, it is in a foreign language. Yes. In what, this are, case, what, what are we supposed to do about it, the practical, well, the, case, the findings of the practical challenges? Yeah. Uh, in this case, Judge Casper did specifically uh, find that the encryption concern was not the agent's primary concern. The primary concern was the, um, the, the number of files that were in Chinese, in Mandarin. Um, the problem here, and one of the things that, that made the, uh, the, the scope and length and duration of this uh, unreasonable, um, uh, uh, was that when you look at the way, the, so the agents did take some time to obtain uh, a, a Chinese-speaking, Mandarin-speaking agent from New York. But she was ultimately uh, only made present uh, in Boston for 10 days out of the 60-day period. I understand that there were um, concerns about the Christmas holiday and the New Year's break and that she had children and family obligations. But in a situation like this, I would suggest that the agents are required to operate with more dispatch. I think the way that the agents handled this situation, having uh, Agent McKenna come from, I think it was December 18th through the 21st or 23rd or something like that, uh, having her then return only in mid-January for three days, they were not acting with the kind of diligence and urgency that do, I think this have, kind of deprivation yeah, Do you have requires. any case law either directly or by analogy that would give us some insight into what level of review or scrutiny we're supposed to give to the assessment of whether there were practical challenges that made it necessary to 
take as long. In other words, if, you, if it's one thing yeah. if you have a hard time stop. Yep. So you know, it can never be more than 50 days. Yep. That's not what you're saying to us. Yep. So you, what you're saying to us is we should scrutinize the practical reasons given for it taking this long to assess whether that was reasonable. Well, what, what kind of uh, intensity am I supposed to use in reviewing the reasons given for the practical thing? So, so I, I mean, it was Christmas. It is in a foreign language, et cetera. How, do, how am I supposed to do I, that? I, I don't have a, a particular case to, uh, to provide, Your Honors. Whatever I have would be in my brief. Mm -hmm. But um, I would say that the, there's an understanding. Border searches historically have been literally border searches, and they have been brief. Over time, the courts throughout the country, the Ninth Circuit in some ways because of its borders uh, may have been in the lead of this, have recognized that border searches can take place some distance from the border. And so there's no question here that taking the stuff to downtown Boston was a problem. But in terms of the length, I think the, the issue is were the agents acting with sufficient diligence was the fact that they kind of waited so long and then had the agent available for the Chinese speaking agent available for such a short period of time is something this court should take into account when looking at the length and duration and scope of this. These were extremely private documents in addition to business documents that were in this thing and the, and the, the, the extent of the search was, was deep using I, forensic I want to tools. Make sure you have a chance to talk about the, whether there was a basis for reasonable suspicion as well, unless my, either of my colleagues wants to spend additional time on the length issue. Um, so the, the reasonable suspicion, suspicion issue is a long one, and that's why it takes such a, 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 a lengthy treatment in my brief. Can but, I just train your focus sure. on, on two questions that I have, and you, sure. and you tell them. As I read the district court opinion, and it's not entirely clear to me, but I think the district court says that there was reasonable suspicion of export violations. And then she has a trailing clause, including blah, 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 and lists four or five different things, which I assume are things that support the basis for reasonable suspicion of export violations. And the two that I'd like you to address are what she identifies as a false statement or reason to believe that there was a false statement about the buoys, and then the um, reason to believe that your client had caused the mislabeling on the EEI, not disclosing the end user. And the reason that those two stand out to me sure. is if the agents believed that there was concealing of information about what was being acquired and to whom it was going to, that seems to me it could provide a reasonable basis to think, given the other information, that this person had engaged or was <coughs> engaging in smuggling and wasn't just about to be doing it. Sure. So what's your answer to that? Well, maybe, maybe I should work backwards with no. respect to the, the listing of Link Ocean as the ultimate consignee, although that's a complicated uh, or maybe not so complicated issue. When you actually read the Federal Trade Regulations, I think it was pretty clear that Link Ocean was a reseller which was uh, and a distributor, which is one of the four types of uh, ultimate consignees that was in the regulations. Link Ocean was not responsible. Mr. Chin was not responsible for filling out the EEI. That was the responsibility but of you're the not U.S. But you're, you're not disputing that Link Ocean had known 
customers that it was going to deliver things to? It had known customers, but in this case, one of the things that just stands out is the fact that the only two investigations that the agents actually made into the 31 transactions that they had listed on the Link Ocean uh, electronic export information documents that they had, the, the only two investigations showed that Mr. Chin had accurately disclosed the end users on the purchase orders for both of those two transactions involving the Marine Sonic suppliers. They had an opportunity to continue investigating prior to this to figure out whether Mr. Chin was listing Link, was causing Mr. Link Ocean to be listed as the ultimate consignee. Well, they had every opportunity to conduct a further investigation, but the only two they conducted showed that he had actually properly disclosed the end user. So there was no concealment here. And I think the agent's uh, understanding of um, the federal trade regulations and the term ultimate consignee was way off base. I mean, I litigated the U.S. versus Lockman case. The agents are responsible for following the plain meaning of the regulations. And I think the plain meaning of the regulations showed that Link Ocean was the, the, the foreign principal party in interest. It was appropriately uh, an ultimate consignee. Well, can you can you export sonobuoys to China? You can't export sonobuoys to China, but Mr. Uh, Chin... But then wasn't one, the... If you made, can't do it, wasn't... Yeah. He, he told an undercover agent he was interested in doing it. He told someone else not to let someone know that his customer was in China. Why, didn't, he, why wasn't there probable cause that he was trying to do something that was unlawful? Mr. Chin did in the initial... First of all, he made one, one request about the Sana boys. Number two, he did uh, ask uh, the, uh, the agents who were involved in the negotiations whether an export license would be needed. And... The critical eight for, uh, email of August 14, 2017 shows that he specifically said, my client only wanted one. I don't, I, uh, he rejected the, ups, the agent's effort to upsell him on that. And he basically said, I'm not going to uh, do this because an export license is required. So he kind of really dealt with that. Can, with can respect I, to the statements. Yeah. I, um, Go ahead. So... Um, with respect to the statements, um, first of all, by uh, two, uh, 18 days prior to the uh, stop and, uh, at, at Logan Airport, the secondary inspection at Logan Airport, uh, Agent Anderson, who was one of the two lead co-case uh, co agents on the case. This is uh, just the argument in your brief about what the evidence shows, right? Yes. Yeah, this, yeah, the, yeah. this is an argument that this, the, the statement wasn't false. Is that the basic idea? Um, that, that, that there was some real, did, there was disagreement about what the agents actually testified, yeah. what, uh, what the statement was. Agent Anderson said that Hughes came back into the, into the office, the HSI office, and said, these are the types of things uh, that I exported. The judge's finding also, if you really want to laser in on that, uh, was that the agents felt that Chin could understand what they were saying, but, they may, but the judge made no finding as to whether Chin was fully capable of, con of conversing and articulating his understanding of what he was doing uh, in English. And in fact, the 
630, uh, the June 30th report of the undercover case agent, you know, showed that Mr. Chin was not, was in fact not very fluent in Chinese. So when you look closely at the judge's findings, they don't necessarily uh, indicate that uh, Mr. Chin under, understood fully uh, what it was he was saying. And it's not clear that the diagrams uh, shouldn't have uh, uh, disabused the agents of what their understanding was. When you look at the discussion of what occurred in the HSI office, the focus was on Chin's inquiries, not purchases, because he didn't do it, into uh, AUVs and sauna buoys and robotic boats. Thank, thank and they you. Knew from th you, have, you have two minutes after, so that thanks. Thank you. At this time, if uh, Attorney Eisenstadt would introduce herself on the record to begin. Good morning. May it please the court, Karen Eisenstadt for the government. Um, I'd just like to quickly pick up where um, counsel left off on the question of reasonable suspicion. So I have three points here. Mr. Chin caused a U.S. manufacturer to conceal from the United States government the actual customer for its exports. That is causing the filing of false electronic export information, EEI. And it's a known way to evade U.S. export controls that was established by this court's opinion in Can Wu. I just, I just want to make sure I understand what your argument is, what the district court's finding is, and what we're supposed to then assess. Is the finding that they had reason to believe he had caused it and therefore there was reasonable suspicion of an export violation in light of that reasonable belief on their part? combined with the other things, or is it that that's the violation that gives rise to the basis for the search? I think it's the latter, Your Honor. Because so I, I don't read the district court to have said that. As I understand the district court's statement, um, it said that there's reasonable suspicion of export violations, which is sort of a broad umbrella of yeah, violations then, related to exports. Well, I don't know if that's what the district court's saying, or what the district court's saying is that there's a reasonable suspicion of export violations, not things that are related to them, because it says export violations, and then it says including, and as I read it, that including phrase seems to me a list of things about which there is uh, reason to think Gwen did these things, such that one could reasonably then suspect he was engaged in export violations. You, you seem to be reading the district court to have found that each of those things in the including clause is itself a, quote, export violation, but visa fraud? That seems like an odd way to characterize it. I think the way the district court, so she uses the word at least. So the government was sort of picking up on the at least when she says causing the filing of false EI, which is itself a federal crime, visa fraud, a federal crime, and false statements of federal crime. So I think the court was looking at it in a broader sense, but also said, you know, to the extent there's any dispute about, you know, export violations in terms of license violations, et cetera, at the very least, there was reasonable suspicion of these specific federal crimes, which would then themselves independently establish reasonable suspicion for the search. Whether you know, so I think she was sort of finding both, but also saying to the extent you know, the court disagrees as to the well, broader let's, category. Let's stick with you, you, are you saying the district court was finding there was reasonable suspicion of export violations in the classic sense, or not? I mean, I don't. I didn't read the court's decision as necessarily finding it's not that. not what I asked. Do you read it to have found it at all? Yes or no? Um, let me take a quick look again. 
Because it's just hard to evaluate what there's reasonable suspicion of if I can't pin down what is the crime they suspected was committed. So the district court said the agents had reasonable suspicion that the electronic devices, which Chin identified as the devices used for work, would contain evidence of export violations, including but not limited to. So I understand the district court to be listing those as export violations, sort of in the sense of al-Assad, that these are border-related so, so the crimes that fall so within the, that jurisdiction. So, so the things that are listed there are the crimes, not necessarily smuggling itself or the, or the actual export. That is my understanding of what the court was saying here by saying, including but not limited to, that those by identifying specific um, provisions of federal law that are crimes, those are the mm -hmm. crimes specifically concretely that there would be reasonable suspicion to suspect had occurred. Okay, so you, then you need to, we need to then, on your view, assess whether there's reasonable suspicion of each of those listed things in the including clause. Uh, I think or it at would least be one of them. At, yes, at least as to one of them. Um, yes, that's that's my understanding. Okay, and so yes. you say that at the beginning there's reasonable suspicion of causing the filing of the e, false EEI or the Correct. wrong EEI. Correct. And just the other two points I was going to make, um, Mr. Chin also was. Um, trying to get people to sell him export-controlled products. He was making inquiries about... Can I just ask, is it clear that all of those things listed in the including clause are enforced by CBP? Uh, yes, that's my understanding. Or, or visa, ICE, visa, which is... Visa fraud? Well, CBP, in terms of um, admissibility, I think, into the country. I, the visa fraud... So the government didn't rely um, independently on visa fraud because the visa fraud presupposes export violations, because it would be fraud in terms of checking I didn't commit any other crimes. So that's not really, doesn't stand independently as a basis, as the government reads it. Okay. And each of the other listed things is, within our precedent, a CBP-enforced CBP offense? Right, that's correct. It's sort of within the al-Assad world of uh, trans-border crime that's um, investigated and enforced by these agencies, CBP and ICE, that at the time were the two agencies that have border authority. Um, I think since then it's been amended, but at the time. Um, and in addition was uh, seeking to purchase military use only sauna buoys. Ian had also hinted more than once to um, Riptide and then to the agent about his openness to taking steps to bypass U.S. export controls. So showing a familiarity with export controls and a willingness to sidestep them. Oh, I hate to just keep harping on this, but I just want to understand there's filing of false EEI. Correct. So the evidence of that is what? That would be um, from the EEI itself and then with the interview with the manufacturer Marine Sonic where um, they explained that they filed the EEI listing Link Ocean as the ultimate consignee because Mr. Chin had made that request to them, don't list the actual customer list Link Ocean. And so did, that's the causing aspect of and, it. And at the time that the officers then engaged in the search, they had reason to think that Chin knew that there was a end user that was not being listed? Correct, because Marine Sonic told them that at the interview, yes. Okay, and then um, visa fraud you're saying you're not relying on as the crime? I think it doesn't stand independently. So then the only other one listed is the, the, uh, false, sta statement. the false statement. So, Correct. So what do you have to say about the false statement? Okay, so um, 
The facts are that at his customs interview, he's asked a seemingly innocuous question about what types of products he exports, and he lies. And Mr. Chin has argued on appeal that it's not clear that he lied, or it's not clear that there was any express statement of limitation in what he told the customs officers. Um, but that's not belied by the record. So if you look at the district court's finding, she specifically found that Mr. Chin indicated that he exported commodities to China, including instruments for measuring current water depth and water temperature, all of which attached to marine buoys. When asked about his other exports, so a clarifying second question, Chin indicated that he only exported items attached to buoys. And when you look at the testimony of the agents, it's all in accord with that. There isn't any discrepancy. Just so we're clear, that, that word only, is, is that her word or is that taken from a statement by anybody else? So Officer Hughes was um, one of the customs agents who was actually conducting the interview. He testified at the hearing. After hearing that he, the types of things were things that attached to buoys, he says, well, we asked him specifically that question, if he exported any items other than those. And he said, no, just items that attach to the buoys. That's in the joint appendix at page 1022. Then Agent Belmarsh, who is the other CBP agent in their interview, we have his report. And in that report, it states, Chin stated he exports only certain instruments that attach to a buoy. And that's um, on page 2065 of the joint appendix. Can I just ask then how this point relates to the length in the following sense? If we isolate the crime to the false statement, didn't they know the statement was false before they even looked at the computer? I think they had information indicating the statement was false. So because why would you need 60 days to then search the computer to prove the false statement when you already had the information about it? If the violation was an export violation, in other words, they're worried that he's been smuggling or is in the process of smuggling, it seems to me to make a lot more sense that they need to do this intensive 60-day search. But if your point is that the violation was the false statement, it seems harder to see why it's reasonable to hold the computer for 60 days to prove that. Right. And so I think um, here the concern is causing the filing of false EI as well. So they have information that that appears to have occurred with Marine Sonic. That's only one of the manufacturers from um, whom he's been exporting over the years. There's, they know he's been working with a lot of other manufacturers, none of which um, show a reporting of ultimate consignee other than Link Ocean. So there's a concern that this has been ongoing and it's a practice. And as this court um, indicated in the Wu decision, it is a way to evade export controls. It's unknown if, you know, at the time, but they had a reasonable suspicion that this is being used to hide end users that perhaps should not be receiving the products, et cetera. And so that's what um, the purpose of the search is to, to um, pursue the reasonable suspicion that that's occurring and find out you know, what's behind it. Because it's an act of concealment, but they don't know, is it because he's smuggling or is it for some other reason? But they do have reasonable suspicion that the crime has occurred and is continuing to occur as if, the business is ongoing. If you look for a moment at the durational issue, um, do we take as a given the resources that the agencies have made available to their tasks and their anticipated tasks, and then say, was it reasonable given those resources? Or do we ask at the outset, given that they're going to have to make these searches from time to time, have they allocated reasonable 
resources to it. The, the reason I ask is it, it seems common knowledge that at least some portions of the government have particular concern about exports to China. It would therefore seem rather odd that apparently searching the entire United States, it took them so long to find even a single person in any of the agencies who spoke Mandarin. Um, so to answer your honor's first question, I think Molina Gomez teaches, um, you know, in addition to there not being a hard and fast time limit, that you know, agency resource constraints are a relevant factor. So there, the court held, we declined to second guess the techniques used by the lab and require um, a faster alternative because that could have damaged the electronics, put an unnecessary budgetary and workload strain on the lab, or could have failed you know, to detect the heroin that was hidden. And there, the court approved a 22-day detention for um, a search that was fairly rudimentary, and I think orders of magnitude more simple than the search here. It was you know, drugs that were hidden in a computer, so you just have to sort of unscrew the casing, open the computer, and find the drugs. And the, on a cursory look at the record, it doesn't appear the agents there even tried to open that computer for 18 days. It just sat on a shelf. But there's a, you know, concerns that there may be um, you know, only specialized agents who can do that or that there's you know, workload strain. So I think um, the case law does support the idea that you know, the fact it, it is a common sense and realistic um, way to look at reasonableness to take into account that there are resource constraints that the government operates under. And then when you look at what happened here, I think the practical challenges stand out because, you know, one, the level of language sophistication they needed was actually fairly high and consequently harder to get. So it's not just someone who can speak Chinese, but it needs to be someone who can read and translate it, and not just regular conversation terms, but marine and export terms that are highly technical. So that's a level of sophistication, both in Chinese and in English, that they needed for this agent to have for it to be useful. And there is testimony that they tried language translation software, and it was completely useless for what they're trying to do here. Um, furthermore, um, you know, Chin crossed the border. As a matter of fact, he crossed the border. The detention here happens the day after Thanksgiving Friday. Um, and there's no evidence of any dilatory behavior by the agents. They immediately go to the HSI office that Friday after Thanksgiving, and they start imaging the computer. Um, and it's the next Monday, right after the weekend, that they start the search for the agent who has the skills and availability to come to Boston who can help with this search. So there's no delay in terms of trying to get the resources. It's but just a practical I, but constraint. Those facts cut the other way to, to ask Judge Kayada's question again, or at least a, a portion of it. If they already had, um, they had concerns, reason to believe about what they would be dealing with, a little foresight might have prevented some of these delays. I think in terms of, you know, really pulling the trigger on trying to get, you know, agency funding and resources for this, that happened once they started imaging the computer and looked at it. So but it wasn't can, an assumption but, made that but they... But you can, you can back into this. If, if, if 22 days, for example, is a benchmark that has been set in one case or another, um, investigative agencies can prepare for that. We've, we've, we've got to get translators lined up. I'm, so what, what do you say about that? I mean, it's understood that, of course, I think that when you read Melina Gomez, sort of the view of the court is it's not this court's job to micromanage sort of or scrutinize sort of every step the government takes in these investigatory 
um, investigation situation. So, I mean, this is the Fourth Amendment, and it needs to be reasonable. And that, of course, um, may I finish? Yes. Uh, that, of course, is what the court is looking at. But in terms of each individual step and whether the government should have lined up someone sooner, I do think that's, you know, second guessing each step the government takes, I think, is sort of just a, a rabbit hole that's not necessary to get into in terms of enforcing the Fourth Amendment rights at issue. Well, but I, I guess the thought is that it's only necessary when you're past some benchmark threshold. That is, it's not that every time there's a search should have been six days rather than seven days. But if we've got a case saying 22 days is lengthy, and now we have a case with 60 plus 11, so 71, right. maybe we should start scrutinizing the days past 22. Well, I think based on um, Molina Gomez and the type of search at issue there, you know, that was lengthy for what they were doing and the challenges at issue in that it was just drugs inside a computer. I think what we're dealing here is just different in kind for that reason. Before you go, I just want to make sure I understand your argument. If, if I didn't read the district court as you read it, where that including clause is just a listing of the export violations, if I read the district court and said to be saying that there was reasonable suspicion that the devices would contain evidence of export violations, actual exporting okay. things that you shouldn't export, and that the things in the including clause are just lists of things that would provide a basis for the reasonable suspicion of the export violations. Are you making that argument or are you not? The government, I think, is making that argument. I don't think they were trying to restrict the argument in okay, terms so, of so, what there's so, reasonable suspicion of. So, it's sort of setting the baseline. So yeah. just help, help me. You heard your opponent's argument with respect to the two things I identified, the basis for thinking that there wasn't causing him to not list something on the EEI. Correct. And the false statement about the buoys. What's the government's view as to whether those two pieces of belief that the officers, if they reasonably could have had them, would that support the conclusion that he was engaged in an export violation or had committed export violations in light of the other pieces of evidence in the record? Yes, I think it absolutely would because um, you know, the false statement, of course, is a statement of concealment, so it raises the suspicion, and also all the other things he had been trying to obtain, which are export-controlled, and thus if, you know, someone had actually sold him those, and we know there's been no license obtained, that would be an export violation. Okay, thank you. Thank you at this time. If Attorney uh, Schneider would reintroduce himself on the record to begin. Two-minute Michael remote. Schneider again for Shiren Chin. Um, Your Honor, uh, so with respect to the last question that you asked the uh, uh, Assistant District Attorney, um, there, were, there were no, um, there were no uh, export violations that the agents had a reasonable basis for believing uh, had actually occurred. Again, the two cases with respect to listing Link Ocean as the ultimate consignee, the two cases that they investigated, they found that he had properly disclosed the end user information uh, to the government, the agents understand, uh, to the uh, U.S. principal party and in interest, Marine Sonic. Um, so, I, uh, to the extent that the judge found that there were, the agents had reasonable suspicion that export can, violations. Can you just clarify for me how you read this key sentence in the district court's opinion? Is the district court saying that the things listed in that including clause? Are the crimes about which they had reasonable suspicion that support the search? Or is the district court saying 
the crimes are export violations and the things in the including clause are things they had beliefs about that provided reasonable suspicion of the export violations? I think it is the latter. I think that the judge was intending to say that they had uh, evident, they had reasonable suspicion to believe that there were export violations and that they included these other things. And that they, they include, that they, 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 what's they, the violations? No, that the agents uh, uh, believed that these things went to the issue of whether, whether export, there was export violations. Export okay. violations and in occurred. your view, in order for there to be reasonable suspicion of an export violation, it has to be one that is being committed or has been committed, not one that might be committed, correct? Correct. And yeah. I would point out, though, that when the agents were asked what they were looking for in, keywords, in their keyword searches, they specifically said that they were looking for evidence of possible future export violations. The other thing is... If Which they, you say just categorically can't be a basis for reasonable suspicion? It can't be a basis for a search, even if there's reasonable suspicion that a future crime might occur? Um, I would I would submit under the facts of this case. I don't know about categorically. I would I'm not sure that I would want to venture into your honor's territory of determining whether it's categorical. But I would say certainly under the facts of this case, look uh, the the fact that the agents were looking for the possibility of future export violations uh, indicated that they did not actually have reasonable suspicion. A, a sufficiently articulable, particularized basis for believing that uh, criminal activity was afoot. Well, if they, if, they, if, if they had activity that there hadn't been an export violation, but he was in the process of accomplishing one, are you saying they couldn't search? If they felt that he was genuinely in the process of accomplishing one, that might and be a different story. He was, planning. Story, he was in the early stages of trying to do it. But in this case, he had made all, had, all I'm that I'm not asking is, about this case. I'm yeah. just asking what your position yeah, is yeah, in response yeah. to Judge Barron's If someone question. in Mr. Chin's position is simply making inquiries about goods that may require it, an export Is the idea that there'd have to be reasonable suspicion that he'd taken steps that would qualify as attempt or conspiracy or something like yes. that? That's, it's got to be an actual crime, yes. not just reasonable suspicion yes. that I think he may commit a crime. Yes, and it's yeah. pretty clear that from the, the minute that they, the inception of this entire investigation. But, but you don't know if, is there case law that you know of that, that draws that line, that in order for a border search to occur, it's got to be of an ongoing or prior crime? and not reasonable suspicion of a crime that is imminent or about to occur? Well, I believe the uh, District Court of uh, Columbia, the D, uh, case, uh, the Kim case, talks about the fact that there needs to be evidence of an ongoing crime. And in that case, the court specifically, that's Amy, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, specifically said uh, evidence of past crimes that had previously occurred and that were done and finished that alone would not be enough. If the agents have a basis for believing that a crime occurred, they should get, they should have, they have probable cause and they should get a warrant. So, so now I'm confused. If you're saying past crimes are no good, but planned crimes are no good, what is good? On uh, evidence that, uh, that under the Terry standard, criminal activity is a fault. You've got to be right evidence in the middle of, of it ongoing, as you cross the border. Evidence of ongoing imminent crime, criminal activity. But that, that's not consistent with our recent precedent, Alamed, right? Because that, that, Opinion seems to contemplate past crimes, past border crimes, counting, or do you not read it that way? Uh, Alisad? Yeah. I think if there was evidence of recent border crimes that looked as though, if it, first of all, why, why wouldn't an agent uh, go ahead and get a warrant if they had a probable cause to believe that a past crime occurred? Uh, and I think the Constitution 
expects that our government behave like this. I mean, this could be an important teaching moment for US-Chinese relations to show how we do things in this country. We have a constitution. If there's evidence of a past crime, then agents of our government should, should go out and get a warrant if they have probable cause. Uh, in this case, I think it's pretty clear that the agents were using this uh, stop in detention, which was pre-planned as of November but, 6th. But, why would an, but the logic just sort of breaks down. The same is true of an ongoing crime. With respect, I'm not sure I understand. With an ongoing crime, why don't you get a warrant? But what's the, is the theory that you just wouldn't have time to get it, so therefore you need to well, do it right at the border at that moment? If they have reasonable suspicion that, that a defendant is engaging in ongoing criminal activity, uh, then they have the right uh, to conduct a, a border search under, the, under Al-Assad. Um, but even if the crime isn't actually at the border, that's what's odd about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Any further questions? Thank you. Thank you. That concludes argument in this case.